So tonight I would like to speak again a little bit about this theme, contemplating the present and living in the present. And uh, again I would like to read from uh, Thich Nhat Khan's commentary on the Padekaratta Sutta. Thich Nhat Khan says, uh, if we live in forgetfulness, if we lose ourselves in the past or in the future, if we allow ourselves to be tossed about by our desires, anger and ignorance, which in the language of the sutta would be uh, swept away by the present, we will not be able to live each moment of our life deeply. We will not be in contact with what is happening in the present moment and our relations with others will become shallow and impoverished. On the other hand, he continues, if we live in mindfulness, we are no longer poor, because our practice of living in the present moment makes us rich in joy, peace, understanding and love. Even when we encounter someone poor in spirit, we are able to look deeply and discover that person's depths and help him or her in an effective way. So the present, the being in the present is always rich, no matter how pleasant or unpleasant. When we watch an unwholesome movie or read a bad novel, if we are already poor in heart and mind and weak in mindfulness, that movie or book may irritate us and make us even poorer. But if we are rich in mindfulness, we will discover what lies in the depths of the film or the novel. We may be able to see deeply into the inner world of the person who directed the film or wrote the novel. So the richness of the present, the depth of the present, and uh, the endless possibility of learning when we are in the present. And being in the present is being mindful. Mindfulness means being in the present. When sati mindfulness is defined in this tradition it is always emphasized that we have mindfulness we have sati only when we are having awareness in the present moment when awareness is not in the present is not co-arising with things then it's not it it's not sati it's not mindfulness also um this is very much connected with uh, what Thich Nhat Khan says about the learning which comes from the present. When you uh, encounter this word, sati, uh, very often it is accompanied by another word, either sampajanya or panya, which means understanding. So sati is authentic, is sati when it is in the present, when it is awareness in the present, and when it is accompanied by understanding, panya or sampajanya. 
or understanding or clear comprehension. Mindfulness is mindfulness when it rests on a basis of understanding, when it has a basis of understanding, and when it promotes further understanding. understanding. So that's why learning is a vital part of, of, uh, of mindfulness, of sati. So sati is being in the present, being in the present is understanding, is learning, and therefore getting richer instead than poorer, uh, which happens every time we uh, go away from the present and we close up instead of opening. In, a, in one of the discourses of the Buddha, the Samanyapala Sutta, the discourse on the fruits of the uh, monastic uh, meditation, the monastic practice, uh, mindfulness is described and uh, um, ancient commentaries um, uh, describes it in more detail. You know, there is this famous um, description of mindfulness where it is said that um, mindfulness is there whatever the monk, whatever the yogi does. Coming and going, sitting and standing, eating and drinking. Mindfulness is always there. So we have this picture uh, of something which is there all the time. Uh, when we first uh, when we first read it, we don't believe it. Uh, but then, um, after uh, doing some practice, we start believing it more. The Buddha was called Sadasato, which means the one who's always mindful. So possibility, what is important, I, ter- I think, in terms of practice, of being. Uh, more mindful than what we are. I think this is enough to, to, to motivate us to practice without um, asking too many questions about is it really possible to be always mindful as a way of you know, distracting ourselves. It's possible to be more mindful, that's uh, enough. <laughs> um, then the commenter says, there are different levels of mindfulness and um, we are presented with four types of uh, monk and the time, the specific time of the day which is chosen is when the monks go for Pindapat for uh, um, in alms round early morning. This has been going on for centuries and is still so in uh, Buddhist countries in Southeast Asia. The first thing the monks do in the morning is uh, walk uh, to the next village and get uh, the food, and then they for the day, and then they come back to the monastery, to the vat, to the vihara, whatever. So this commentary says there is the uh, monk who lives with mindfulness and comes back with mindfulness. You know, the impeccable one. Then there is the monk who lives without mindfulness and comes back with mindfulness. And there is the monk who is the other way around, uh, uh, lives with and comes back without. 
and then there is the monk who leaves without and comes back without. You know, it's hopeless. Um, so the, the, the picture is a realistic one. It doesn't seem to be very idealized. And uh, uh, actually, the commentary says about this monk uh, who doesn't have mindfulness, when he gets into the village, he doesn't have an idea of what a meditation object is. So, um, the, uh, also it's very nice, the description of the monk who leaves having a lot of mindfulness and then comes back without. It says, this monk stops at the village, uh, gives a Dharma talk to uh, the lay supporters of the uh, monastery, always being uh, merged uh, into mindfulness. Uh, and then um, these people are very warm and friendly uh, with him. And finally, he takes leave from them, comes back to the monastery, and all the novices and the other monks uh, go to meet him and uh, ask him, oh, who, who were those people uh, you were talking to? Are, are, are those people your relatives or your friends? And the monk says, relatives, these people have been doing for us much more than what relatives do. And so he gets very animated and loses his mindfulness. But then there is the monk who leaves and is uh, very hot. And uh, he's thirsty and hungry and uh, somehow sick at his stomach, so doesn't have any mindfulness. But then he decides to, um, to drink uh, something which is called congee. Uh, and uh, he, has, he, he drinks this, this beverage and, um, and feels more energy, feels more relaxed after uh, giving himself some nourishment. And he goes back to, to mindfulness. Mindfulness comes back uh, because of this balancing of energies through, through, the, uh, through the drink. And the commentary also says that actually in Sri Lanka, a number of monks get, got enlightened through drinking congee. So in, I don't know whether this is still available, but if you, <laughs> if you happen to go to Sri Lanka, <laughs> inquire. <coughs> And then there is this monk, who, the impeccable one, who um, stays mindful. And um, he says, he, he gives a Dhamma talk to uh, the other monks, and he says something interesting. He says, look, you're not here for any other reason. You, you, you got ordained for one basic reason, and which is to, 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 get to, be, to become liberated. You, you didn't come here to ordain for uh, mundane reasons, but the only reason the only true reason is liberation. Therefore, when some affliction, some uh, poison, some manifestation of attachment, aversion, uh, and delusion comes upon you when you are walking, uh, you catch it, you uproot it while you are walking. When some manifestation of attachment, of aversion comes upon you when you are lying down, you catch it and work on it while you are lying down. And if it happens while you're sitting, you immediately uh, work at it, on it, while you're sitting. And that gives a, a very nice um, uh, taste of, of um, the momentum and the immediacy that, uh, uh, and, and, and you know, the, 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 the sharpness that mindfulness can have. 
So mindfulness as our basic tool um, in a retreat and soon outside of a retreat. Mindfulness as a tool to be in the present and to enrich ourselves through constant learning. Uh, it would be uh, good if we examine a little bit uh, closer uh, the idea of learning through mindfulness. Um, a couple of reflections uh, can help. First of all, um, mindfulness builds up. Mindfulness uh, is uh, something which grows through cultivation. A retreat is a very interesting model to understand this cumulative, uh, in a sense, cumulative process. Because in a retreat we can't ask ourselves at the beginning of a retreat what we can ask uh, after uh, a number of days of meditation. If we did, you know, we, we wouldn't be realistic. So there is something which builds up. Mindfulness grows. And we have to take this into account. Uh, remember this and accept this. Of course, the danger is to develop a calculating mentality. That's a danger. Once we see it, we should let go of it. Because you know, calculating mentality is the opposite of acceptance, of, of, of letting go. But we also should understand that uh, you know, the intention of being mindful is not enough. It takes a building up takes a momentum to develop for mindfulness to be more and more effective. So if we understand this, we develop patience, kanti, which is a very important parami, very important virtue to have in the practice. And uh, number two, the first thing to be learned is uh, about our mindfulness. How much do we know? about this tool that we have. Not mindfulness in general, but our level of mindfulness. Uh, do, do we go out uh, with mindfulness and come back without? What happens in, in, uh, in, in our daily life? What's, what's uh, the level of our mindfulness? Uh, do we ever check the level of our mindfulness? Do we know whether sometimes it's, for instance, more preferable to make an intention to let go first so that mindfulness can come in uh, or maybe sometimes it's the other way around that we can be just can be just mindful and then through the mindfulness some letting go some acceptance can come in or are we vague are we um, um, you know uncertain about how this tool works in our lives I think the more precise we are in, 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 in our knowledge the more we are applying mindfulness to mindfulness, uh, which is the only way to work with it. If we think of a few examples, um, this can be helpful. Learning and mindfulness. Being in the present moment and mindfulness. We might think of some difficult situation, like being sick or being... Uh, um, having to do something to do with, with, with um, um, an unpleasant person. And so we find ourselves in a present difficult situation. 
where is the richness of the present? We would happily go into the past or in the future rather than being in the present sickness or in the presence of this uh, unpleasant person. But where is the richness uh, of the present? First of all, if we have some background in practice, in mindfulness, the very act of turning on mindfulness generates some energy, some interest, some opening up. So this is the first uh, little enrichment that we get immediately. So mixed up with the unpleasantness, with the sickness, with our reactivity, there is a little uh, light, something different, some energy, some interest, which already is enough to affect, uh, 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 to promote a, a change in feeling, a change in tone in the situation. But this is just the basis. The learning is more profound. Number one, the more we do it, the more we exercise mindfulness in such situations, the more we find out that we are not helpless victims of a given situation, that we have some power. We are sick, we are ill, we are being um, uh, bombarded by you know, the, 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 the wrong things which this person says. Um, in the wrong way, at the wrong time, always. You know, each of us uh, often has a, uh, a specific trainer uh, in our life, uh, someone who uh, regularly maybe is tormenting us. And, and, <laughs> and we in turn are tormenting someone else, maybe we don't know it. Uh, the chain of unhappiness is called. <laughs> So if we practice mindfulness and do it more and more, we see that we are not powerless, that if we watch the painful sensations which are connected with our flu, with our cold, whatever it is that we are suffering from, then we have some power in the perception of the illness, of the disease, in the perception of the unpleasant person. Something gets changed in our perception of the situation. So we realize that through mindfulness we have some power in this fundamental area of the knowing. We assume that uh, a sickness is a objective reality and that we are only reflecting this reality. But this is very naive because we are making, we are participating in the making of this reality. Our perception of it can change. So is it there such a solid reality called sickness? There is this superb page of uh, Ajahn Sumedho when, uh, where he talks about um, um, one time in Thailand when he was having malaria and the, the, the turning point was when he realized that 
the problem actually wasn't malaria, but was his reacting to malaria. That was the heavy part of the sickness. And when he had this breakthrough, when he realized this, uh, malaria in itself became much lighter and uh, he got over it. So where is the objective, the objective reality, the, the, the solidity of the sickness? Uh, if we are practicing uh, moment after moment in the present moment, there is something which desolidifies. And then when we get distracted and when we get into reactivity again, then solidifies back again. The sickness is back. I am sick. I am suffering from the flu, which came, of course, at the wrong time. We don't know when is the right time for the flu. Uh, it solidifies back. It, 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 you know, the, the, the reality uh, of, of, of our flu is born again, because ego is born again. It's the same, it's two sides of the same coin. Then again, we go back into the present, and we stay moment after moment, and we have, and we have a flow of different sensations. We forget about this uh, solid thing pulsating, which we call flu. It's not solid anymore, and we are freer. So this is um, a remarkable learning. We have power in the perception, in the knowing, and that changes the whole field of energy within ourselves. That changes reality. Sickness is completely different. It is not that we are not sick anymore. We are sick and sickness is totally different. From this sense of having some power in the perception of things, trust comes. Trust. You know, we've been planting seeds through the practice and something is positive is happening. And trust is open, open-ended, more and more. Someone asked about hope. I think hope as a virtue is exactly this trust, this kind of trust. When we talk about hope in a common way that is equal to expectation or um, attachment, but the, 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 the kind of hope which comes from, which comes with the trust, it's very different. It's not an attachment. It's a total opening. But what is interesting, looking at these difficult situations, is that if on the one hand we learn about power and trust, on the other hand, we see that, yeah, that, that we are powerless. So, no, it's not, it's not a... Um, uh, what, what, do, what do I mean by that? We see that we have very little power, very little control on the situations, over the situations. But no matter what we do and what we say, um, there will be um, aggressive persons. We 
we have a, a way of asking ourselves, is it possible that this person is so aggressive? Yes, it is possible. But there is a, a part of ourselves um, which is surprised, which indicates that attachment plus delusion makes us think that somehow it's possible to control and uh, finally have everyone kind and nice. <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't be surprised. We wouldn't ask ourselves, is it possible? Of course it's possible. If we ask that question, it means that somewhere uh, within us, we think that um, it would be possible to control everything. And we are very disappointed that uh, we can't. So it seems that in, in, in applying mindfulness, what happens is that, it, so to speak, in one stroke, we learn about power and about powerlessness, about trust and about humility. Because touching and seeing and penetrating the, the out-of-controlness of it all, so to speak, is humility. Humility. humility is very close to what's called in this tradition anatta, realizing that things are out of control and not mine. We, I, we, you know, we don't we don't own anything. That's humility. On the one hand, we learn the power of mindfulness, the power of opening, the power of not being victim of of a certain way of perceiving, of knowing the world, and the power of changing our perception of the world, very beneficial. And on the other hand, we accept this, this being out of control of things. And the trust and the humility are very connected. You know, it sounds like two contradictory things, power and powerlessness. It's not. We see what is possible to do, consciousness, mindfulness, and what is not possible to do, rearranging the world. And it's fine. So the more we practice, the more we can deepen this kind of fundamental learning. You know, sometimes we uh, tend to give up you know, the sickness uh, keeps going and uh, gets worse. The person gets worse. And uh, at, one point, at one point we can like, feeling like closing up in a sort of uh, nuclear shelter, you know, waiting for the sickness to be uh, over or the person to be disappeared. But that's, that's an important test learning not to give up mindfulness. Uh, some of you might remember this line from the Gospels when the Christ says, pray always without giving up. You know, the Buddha would say, be always mindful. Without giving up. So we have this tendency because of attachment, aversion, and ignorance, at one point, the tendency to give up enough with mindfulness. You know. uh, so you go on strike. 
That's a pitfall. If we learn to to hold, this is another big enriching. Just just uh, just touching this possibility. Things are difficult. Things are bad, and we keep our mindfulness in and out. But we, you know, keep working at it. Keep working at it. Um, it's not it's not uh, exciting. We, we we don't feel anything. It's dry. Okay, keep doing it. Dry mindfulness. We are mindful that our mindfulness is dry. Okay, and we keep doing it. We can see little miracles in terms of uh, uh, relationships you know, with difficult people. If we keep being mindful, if we keep being open, you know, we get more bombardment, more, and you know, we don't give up. We stay open, we stay mindful. And we can unexpectedly see changes in that very difficult relationship. Because we, uh, we kept praying. We didn't give up. I was thinking of another example. I remember this experience of uh, a meeting and then at one point uh, this woman um, just lost her temper and started yelling uh, at the top of her voice against another person. Just uh, you know, ordinary little violence and aggression <laughs> happens. So I happened to be mindful that morning. <laughs> And the mindfulness can sometimes create a sort of unified field. So I would listen to each uh, word or half word that this person was saying and look at every uh, twinge movement, whatever. And the, the feeling was so much completely different from the usual feeling that you have in such situations. And when I looked at other people, I saw myself when I am not mindful, because each one in the room was either looking out of the window or <laughs> up to the ceiling, or just have a fixed gaze. You know, like <laughs> because uh, there was this uh, general attempt at avoiding avoiding the suffering which was coming, you know, plenty of suffering from this person. So the idea was if I just uh, close myself up and try not to listen and ignore this and uh, uh, wait for it to be over finally, you know, um, I'm going not to suffer. This is avidya, this is the total delusion because it was, it was so obvious that it was exactly the other way around, that the suffering was doubled, and probably you know combined altogether, you know they would uh, 
been a, a, a summing up of all the uh, individual uh, uh, contraction and suffering. Avoiding what was there, what was in the present. In the present there was the, this big suffering and this person who was screaming her suffering. But, uh, you know, we tend to separate. Instead, the enriching thing, the learning thing, was not to be separated. It was difficult, it was uh, uh, painful, but, you know, painful in a very different way. Some seed of compassion, of course, are there when you are not copping out, when you stay there. One last example um, of a general fact, and then we go into the last section I would like to deal with. And this general, general thing I'm thinking of is something which in uh, the practice we see and we see in, in our life, and is the fear, the fear of insecurity. Not liking whatever is doubt, not liking whatever is uh, uncertain, uh, one of uh, uh, his Western disciples, I think is Ajahn Munindo, talking about Ajahn Chah, says that once he well, went to see him and talked about um, uncertainty. And Ajahn Chah listened to him and then he said, you know, if something is not certain, if something is uncertain, and you want to make it certain, you're going to suffer. So we don't like insecurity. We don't like uncertainty. Which means that we don't like a big part of our life. And we are afraid of uncertainty. We are afraid of insecurity. If we try to be more in the present, to be more mindful of our fear of insecurity, that fear can start to drop, can start to go away, and we can begin accept uncertainty, accept insecurity. And that frees a remarkable part of our energy some questioning, some investigation is helpful in this area. You know, why, why am I afraid of uncertainty, uncertainty, of insecurity? Or where is it that I am feeling it? It can be very subtle. Uh, just, you know, can be right uh, around the corner, just lurking. But confronting it through mindfulness in the present. It's very important for many obvious reasons, plus one fundamental reason. And the fundamental reason has to do with this 
basic fact that uh, it gets us in touch with a fundamental level of uncertainty, which is called impermanence. The more we face insecurity, the more we face uncertainty, the more, the closer we go to the fundamental uncertainty, impermanence. Our life is impermanent. There will be death. The text in this tradition says, Maranam Bavisati, which means just literally, there will be death. So we get closer to impermanence. More specifically, we get closer to our fear of impermanence. And we think that the problem is impermanence. Not true. The problem is our fear of impermanence. But once we start having a, an experience of impermanence, that fear starts dwindling. Easily we have concepts about, about impermanence. Sometimes people, when they uh, approach Theravada Buddhism, are not very satisfied. They say, um, we have to work in order to find out that everything dies and that we are like an uninhabited house. Uh, this is sad. Uh, then maybe we hear about the different formulation than other Buddhist schools, and they say everything is in interdependent. And we say, oh, this is nicer. This sounds nicer. <laughs> and uh, it uh, also reminds us of modern physics, so it's more reliable. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> if we ask um, a person who has had some... Um, real experience in uh, the uh, interdependence in the Mahayana field, then this person would know, wouldn't have any ob objection to use the frame of reference of, of, of impermanence and no-self to talk about the interdependence. So we are back into impermanence. We thought we had got rid of it, but it's there. So maybe we think, well, we drop the whole of Buddhism. No, we, we leave it to uh, psychologists, uh, physicists, ecologists. You know, we don't, we don't want Buddhism anymore. Maybe we are tired of all this Buddhist cleverness and stinginess, and uh, <laughs> we want a real uh, spiritual tradition where they are not afraid of calling things by their names, like God and all that. But interestingly, what do we find? Say, if we uh, go a little bit into Christian mysticism, what we find is that the more the experience of God, the ex spiritual experience, develops, the more the, the experience of impermanence develops. It is very clearly uh, stated. So we try to get rid of impermanence and we find it again. And I remember once um, I asked um, highly accomplished contemplative nun. Uh, actually, Larry and I, a few years ago in Italy, spent a few very good days at her monastery. 
And I once asked this nun, um, if, I, if I talk about seeing things in the light of impermanence and uh, in the light of no self, what makes this thing, what, what makes this, you, uh, you know, what's the idea for you in your, in your language, in your concepts? And she said that, I think that seeing things in God and seeing God in things is more or less the same thing. Things become ephemeral. The experience of impermanence uh, is the other side of the coin. Probably, you know, many Christians and many Buddhists would disagree, but um, it's possible also to agree. What did the Buddha do? He chose a different path. Uh, in, in, in his times, there were many um, uh, contemplative Hindu schools, and this is an oversimplification, they, 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 they would start from above, you know, having first of all the experience of the ultimate truth, Atman Brahman, and then you would understand the rest of it. But the Buddha said, let's do it the other way. Let's start from uh, down here. And uh, what do we have? We have, it seems, what, what, what is there? Six senses and six objects of senses. And he, he asked, do, do you see anything more, anything else than you know, six senses plus the objects? So let's work with what we have. So if we work what we have with what we have, we find ourselves facing constant change. And then the Buddha showed that through the contemplation of constant change, you get at that which neither is born nor dies. But through the contemplation of impermanence and change, you realize something which doesn't change. Now, is impermanence different from whatever it is that uh, you find out? Well, my uh, suspicion is that if you walk along this path of impermanence, then cannot be different on one level and this different on another level. But I couldn't possibly think that The whatever it is that you find as a final enlightenment is different from what you've been working on, which promoted this, this realization. So are, is impermanence different or is impermanence the same as the ultimate? I bet it's the same and it's different. <laughs> but that's my modest understanding. The important thing in terms of practice is that we can have an experience of impermanence to the extent that we are in the present moment. Present moment and impermanence are the same. Impermanence is now, 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 now. This is impermanence. So being in the present, it's being in the impermanence, is having an experience of impermanence is 
stopping being afraid of impermanence is finally opening up to impermanence. And whoever has done it, and some people are doing it in this retreat, knows that this is everything except saddening, everything except uh, heavy. Through being in the present, we have an experience of impermanence. And having experience of impermanence, we can learn and we can live in the richness of the present, in the richness of impermanence, and in the joy of learning. Because we all know that when we learn something, the initial phase is very good, it's very fresh. We learn a craft, we learn an art, we learn, we learn a profession, a sport, a game. And when we are just learning it, it's very, it's very exciting, it's, everything is fresh. Then, when we decide that we have learned it, uh, something gets lost. But the practice is learning, and it doesn't stop. If we think that we have learned, then we are not practiced, if we think that we are finished. So, if we practice, truly, we learn. And when we learn, there is joy, and there is freshness. Again, the richness of the present moment.